Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I am happy to welcome today to the Morning Glory Project, Catherine Abdul-Baki. Catherine was born in Washington, D.C. to an Arab father and an American mother. In addition to her bicultural immediate family, she had a globe-trotting childhood, growing up with dramatic changes in community and culture as her father's work brought them to Iran, Kuwait, Beirut, Jerusalem, Honolulu, and D.C., and a number of other places. (laughs) The geographical and cultural changes were huge, but dwarfed in comparison to the tragic losses her family would sustain. When she was seven, Catherine's brother was born and would struggle with a heart defect that required extensive treatment. During this time, her mother also was diagnosed with cancer. Her brother passed away at only 18 months, such a heartbreak, and her mother passed away at age 32. Catherine's entire world changed. Catherine, despite a happy marriage and beloved children of her own, would find herself in the throes of depression as she came to her own 30th birthday. With that, with what were then inexplicable feelings of abandonment, she'd make an attempt to take her own life. Behind the scrim of her own life, there would always be the image of the mother she lost before she ever really got to know her. It was by connecting, reconnecting to the joyful aspects of her early life that Catherine was able to heal. And specifically through dancing that she reconnected to this joy. Her memoir, Dancing into the Light, gives readers a unique glimpse into her story, into Arab culture, and into the psyche of a young Arab woman. Catherine, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased to have you here. Thank you so much, Betsy. and Thank you for having me. Good morning, everybody. Let me share the beautiful book cover for those who are seeing us. It's a gorgeous cover of a woman in a red dress walking, but almost dancing across a a dune, a sand dune of sorts. It's really beautiful. And the subtitle, An Arab-American Girlhood in the Middle East. So Catherine, give us just a quick tour of the geography of your growing up. Well, as you mentioned, I was born in Washington, D.C. Shortly thereafter, when I was four, my father took a job in Tehran with the um, Department of Defense. So we went to Tehran for two years. When that contract was over, they, my parents did not want to return to D.C., so he took a job with an oil company in Kuwait. That was the major part of my growing up from when I was 6 to 16. That was a big span then. That was a big span, yes. And uh, after that, we went to Lebanon, where I spent three years. I graduated my senior year of high school and went two years to college. Then I got married at the tender age of 19, and came to the United States to complete my studies, along with my husband. Uh, We came to Washington, D.C. again, interestingly enough. Which is where you live now. 
which is where I live now. However, shortly after we graduated from college here, we went to New York because he was uh, working in banking. So we went to live in New York for six years. And then we were posted overseas to Bahrain back in the Persian Gulf. Oh, so you don't cut it even after the marriage, of yes, course. Yes, after, after the marriage. And then we came back to New York. And then finally, we, uh, he changed jobs. And we came to Washington, D.C., where we have lived since 1981. I should say during the marriage, not after. Your marriage did not No, during the marriage, correct. (laughs) After the wedding. After I got married, yes. (laughs) What also fascinates me is not not only was this marriage bicultural, but, you know, your father was Arab, Palestinian Arab, correct? Correct. Saying that correctly. Yes, and Muslim. Your mom was from Tennessee and had, she wasn't just from Tennessee. She had very deep and very long American roots. So she was... As American as anybody who was not is not indigenous to this country Correct. is not an indigenous person. Um, she is as American as anyone could be in that way. Can you tell me just a little bit about that, about her roots? Yes, her uh, her uh, mother and father both their families came during the late 1600s. On her father's side, they were um, English and Scottish and Irish, and on her mother's side, they were French Huguenots mainly. Uh, originally. But they were from further back than the 1800s, right? The Huguenots. Yes, they came in the late uh, 1600s before the 1700s, both sides of her family. And in Tennessee, where she was, they grew up outside of Nashville, and her extended family are in surrounding towns. I mean, her father, her grandfather even ran for uh, the Republican senator of Tennessee uh, back in the 40s. So, I mean, she has deep roots in Tennessee. And in the U.S., as American as apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so here you are, the first, you know, nine years of your life, let's just say, before the birth of your little brother, uh, it was just you. Correct. You know, no, he was born when, when I was seven. seven. Yes, he died when I was nine. Correct. And first of all, to lose a toddler in a family has got is is an exquisite kind of heartbreak. Um, just so heartbreaking. And so we'll get to that in just a moment. But that first seven years, I'm thinking about what it was like for you culturally, what your relationship with your mom and your dad was like in terms of how you leaned. And here, we also must say those, those who aren't seeing Catherine, who are hearing this in audio, Catherine has strawberry blonde, red hair, freckles, light colored eyes, looks more Tennessean than Palestinian, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> and so here you were, a red, red-haired, freckle-faced girl in a brown-faced world. What, what was that like for you? Well, I, I, you know, it was interesting because as a child, you're not really conscious of this. I never really felt conscious of my parents' biculturalism. To me, they were just my parents. Although my father was very Arab and he was Muslim and he never lost his accent. My mother was very Southern and always spoke with a Southern accent. Uh, never never converted to his religion or anything. They just kept their own identities and, and uh, went about their business. The interesting, well, among Palestinians, uh, I was not really that unusual because you have a lot of um, redheads, blondes, uh, blue eyes, and Palestinian, you know, all the cross cultures over the centuries. But among where I grew up initially and went to started school in Kuwait, I was very noticeable because the Kuwaitis are much uh, darker skin, uh, dark eye, dark hair, 
very, very homogenous. So, and even in Tehran, well, in Tehran before that, I'm not really conscious of much other than going to my American school in Tehran. But when I went to Kuwait, my mother very wisely, I will say, put me in a little girl's public school, a little in a little seaside fishing village, because she knew growing up in the house where we only spoke English, I'd never learn Arabic. There was just no way. And so she put me there, uh, much to my chagrin, because I couldn't understand a word of any, any anybody was saying. And I spent the next six years there in that school. Language immersion program, It's a, right? definitely a language immersion program and a cultural immersion program. All my little friends lived in very uh, seaside village homes, whereas I lived in an American compound with air conditioning. And it was a very, very different home than theirs were. Uh, but um, each day I went from my American compound by car to the little village, went to school with my friends, thought nothing of it, came back to my American compound, went to another two hours of English lessons with the expat children, uh, and we had a Calvert correspondence course everyone followed there. And then, you know, I, I just went back and forth on a daily basis. I never thought anything of it. It sounds as though you felt that this was just a natural way of doing things. It strikes me how, how flexible children are when they haven't been introduced to the fact that it's a problem. This didn't sound like it was dealt with by your mother or your father or your community as a problem. It was just, we're going to do this to help Catherine develop these skills. And that's the way it went. And, and it sounds like you flourished in that way. Well, my mother to me seemed very, um, just uh, not feeling my angst at all. She just expected me to, to go along and, you know, put up with things and get acclimatized. It was good because, as I said, if I was begging not to go there and she had listened, I would never have learned or been immersed in that culture mm. the way I was. And she knew it was necessary to fit in with my father's family, you know, to speak their language. Not all of them spoke English. And, and did she learn Arabic? She learned a few words here and there. She could probably understand a little bit. She never learned it fluently. And most of my aunts, for example, didn't speak English. My, that my uncles did because they went to higher education um, and learned English. But my aunts, most of, some of them did. Some of the extended family did. But uh, learning the, the language and getting, it helps you immerse into that culture so much better, as you know. Sure. Well, so you describe in your book this feeling of not being deeply connected to your mom. And, and I'm not talking about just when you were, after she passed, but in that kind of early, almost adolescence of age nine, 10. So your brother is born when you're seven. He passes when you're nine. And that had to have just absolutely rocked your family and your mother specifically. And then at what point was she diagnosed with cancer? I know she was getting treatment while he was getting treatment, right? When he was, when I was nine, she was diagnosed with it. And she passed when I was 11. Yeah, I keep messing up the math. Well, of course. <laughs> so you described, though, sort of not feeling as connected to her um, as a child, feeling she had a different disposition than your own. Can you tell me just a little bit about that? Because how it comes across in your story and in, in the bit that I have of your bio there is that you lost her before you really 
felt deeply connected to her. So you lost the mom you didn't ever quite have. Can you tell me about that difference? Of course, I realize this more as an adult. But yes, I think for some reason, we were temperamentally very different. I was very much, I was a tempestuous kind of emotional child. Uh, I was uh, sensitive, um, shy. Uh, and I was much more like my dad in many ways. Uh, she was much more happy-go-lucky and just forged into the unknown, not really uh, afraid or sensitive of much. Um, so I think in that way, because she didn't sort of coddle me and, and you know, she just sort of go along and go along and, and you know, um, swim, you know, <laughs> um, I, I sort of felt a little disconnect. I'm sure she was very close with me when I was younger. We're not saying that she wasn't a loving mother Correct. and you didn't love her, but she was. there wasn't that kind of tight connection that you felt from your son. Correct. Now, there are many uh, of her cousins in Tennessee that I, I know now and I mean, who are much more uh, cuddly and affectionate and physical than she was. I think also the fact that she had, um, my, my brother had a very serious heart defect and then she got cancer. So those were also from when I was seven to... Uh, when I was, uh, sorry, uh, nine or eight, really, until I was 12, I mean, 11, when she died. So that probably affected things. She was preoccupied all the time with her illness and with her son and with the loss and with grief. So, um, but, you know, she put up a strong front in everything. But I think that also had uh, had to have interfered for all of us. Well, the other part of in our previous conversations and in reading your story too, that kind of comes across is on one hand, you had all these wonderful resources. You had a series of what I'd call mother figures, uh, a housekeeper that was a rich and important part of your family, aunties, others along the way. And that sounds wonderful, you know, to have had those wonderful um, communities that you somehow adapted to and felt a part of whenever you would move or when your stepmother came along, all of those things. But it also meant that it was a series of losses. When I, I think of military families that move a lot, oh. that oftentimes they're called military brats, right? Army brats, whatever, that they often uh, find it difficult to stay someplace for a long time because they've had so many, or to feel deeply connected to somebody. They form a quick bond, but they let go of it quickly. And it I wonder if there was a, an element where, yes, you had a series of lovely, wonderful women, but it was also meant that, that in addition to your mother, you lost a series of women, including her extended family when she passed. Can you say a little bit about that? If, if Were you conscious of that or was it just something that was in the background that you weren't thinking about? Well, I was always missing people because when we lived in Kuwait as a nuclear family. So when my mom died, although I have the, had those loving aunties on my dad's side, uh, tons of them, um, they were still two hours away by plane. So only one of them could come and visit uh, for a few months each year. But basically, they were not around. My loving grandmother, my mother's mother, who lived in Honolulu, she was very close to me, but again, she was so far away. Right. So we could communicate, you know, through letters or tape recordings, which we sent back and forth. But there was nobody there except for our housekeeper who was there. She was the one who was there and the very supportive, very uh, affectionate woman, another mother, if you will. 
Also, I would say in my small community of the compound, the expat compound, the mothers of all of my friends kind of stepped in. And um, and they were like surrogate mothers, and they had known my mother, and they took you know great care to uh, invite me and to nurture me, and so I was fortunate in that I had all of those loving. But they weren't they weren't like right in my neighborhood, so I had to wait a whole year before I could fly to Jerusalem, see those aunts, live with them for two or three months, and then go on to Honolulu with my dad when he took his home leave and see my mother's mother. Uh, fortunately, we all stayed very close. Even when my dad remarried, uh, my grandmother stayed very close to us, my mother's mother. Well, it's it's interesting to me, Catherine, how you quite artfully, in just a moment ago, chose a, a child's way of describing wash. You said, I was always missing someone. Yeah. I was always missing someone. I think that's how a child experiences it. You know, we talk about grief and loss and those things. Yeah. A child just knows they're missing somebody. <laughs> they're, you know, there's just this longing. And then as you became an adult, you married, you had your children, you're raising your children, you've written several novels and published them and, and have achieved success in your way and your husband's success as well. Then you're approaching your 30th birthday. Tell me what happened? I think I'd been dreading my 30th birthday for all the obvious reasons. It's just a round number. And growing up in the 60s, we never trusted anyone over 30. And here I was. You were crossing the line. I was crossing the line in a sense and joining the enemy. Well, uh, but also deep down, I knew I was hitting that age where my mother uh, got really sick and and, and had passed on. Mm. And I just, in the back of my mind, I thought I was going to die. I didn't think I was going to live much beyond my 30s. I just subconsciously thought, or consciously on another level, thought that I was going to die. And um, for some reason, there was something in my life that involved a loss. And I just, uh, I thought, this is too much. I don't want to live anymore. And um, I just, you know... Uh, took some pills and thought this was it. Uh, now I look back and I thought, how could I have done that? Uh, that's the mm. depth of despair. And uh, I couldn't, I could talk, I was seeing a therapist at the time. And of course I could talk to her about it, but um, I couldn't tell anyone. Well, the way that you described it too, in our, in our earlier conversation, it was, you described it as despite the logic and by the way, depression and mental health concerns are not always logical. They are. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, I did this because of that. It's not a straight line. But that you had been feeling this sense of abandonment. Correct. That people were leaving. Even your husband was not leaving. This It was not a family breaking up. But you had this feeling of abandonment. And, and that added to your story. Can you say just a tiny bit about that? The feeling of abandonment, I guess... It just, it runs so deep. And even though nobody had abandoned me on purpose, uh, you know, my mother had no control over the fact that she abandoned me. But um, deep down with me, and that must have just been so, so deep that it was just, uh, life was too hard to go on. Mm. Um, maybe I, I didn't feel, in my book I say I didn't feel, I felt worthless. I kind of did. I, I didn't understand it. But I just knew I, I was in too much pain. At that point, my husband was also traveling quite a bit overseas. 
So he, and every time he would travel, because uh, he'd go far places, he'd go like to Saudi Arabia or uh, in the Middle East for his job. Um, you know, I, I, I would have these massive fights with him before he left. Because mm. I felt, well, if something happens to him when he's gone, I will be angry with him. So <laughs> I, I wanted, I was protecting myself from grief in case something happened to him. Mm. And then when he was gone, we didn't have cell phones or anything, so he could talk to me occasionally when there was a phone, you know, but a phone line, I mean, a long distance line, but they, it was expensive and we couldn't do it all the time. So for long periods, say two or three weeks, I would be abandoned again. Uh, through no fault of his own, but... Well, and let's talk about the difference between it being abandonment versus it feeling like abandonment. That, Correct. There, there's a difference. Like you said, your mother didn't abandon you. She passed away. Was, you know, she died of cancer, for Pete's sake, tragically, and it's so young. And yet the experience of that for the little girl who lost a mommy is abandonment. The experience of losing aunties, of moving away of being far away that it just felt and you said you felt um worthless i i wonder if it also was sort of feeling unimportant in some way i i often wonder about it. yeah unimportant or or just no reason to go on for some reason um i i also didn't have at that point uh we had moved to washington from new york and um we had been here just a year or so, and I didn't have strong friendships. I think that might have helped had I had strong uh, friendships with people. I knew various people, you know, the parents of the kids who went to school with my kids. They were all very nice, and, uh, you know, I had a nice social life. But I hadn't yet built a solid community of friends who could be there to support me, and um, I don't feel that now. I've never felt that sense of, of abandonment since then uh, with my life later on, because I have, I have developed a very strong community surrounding me. But at that point, I, I still hadn't. And my husband, although he sympathized very much with my dislike of his travel, I mean, he had to do it for work. And so he was not very um, understanding of my, my objections to him going away for three months, leaving me with the three kids. Well, there's that too. And you know, I think a lot of people, whether it's because of travel, as you say, or or even in a relationship that might be vulnerable, I think that a lot of people turn the fear of loss into fighting. Like it's it's easier to leave on rocket fuel than it is to feel like you're left behind. Right. And I don't think that's terribly uncommon, Catherine. I'm sure it's not. I think anger is easier for some people to manage than sorrow. Yes. And we turn a lot of sorrow into drama. And I, I figured that out after a while because I said, hey, there's a pattern here. Every time he goes away, we have this big fight. And that sort of gives me the, as you say, the fuel to to subsist, for, not to be, you know. Uh, well, not to feel the not sorrow. to be vulnerable. No, exactly. So, And then I, after a while, and then, of course, he'd come back to a house and he was the stranger who suddenly walked back into our lives. Uh, anyway, that went on several for several years, but that's what he had to do. Um, but yeah, that was part of it. Your book is titled Dancing into the Light. So here you had this nadir, right? This The, the darkest moment. Uh, and not surprisingly, 
near the age of your mother's passing, you get to feeling like you can't live beyond that. That you know, I don't think we have to be uh, Sigmund Freud to figure that out. <laughs> that, that that makes sense. And yet, your book is titled "Dancing into the Light." Can you tell me how and when dance became? part of your healing path. It wasn't like you were depressed at 30, tried to take your own life and then poof, you started dancing and everything got better. I, I'm not implying correct, that in correct, any way at no. all. But that in terms of your ongoing growth, how did you arise out of that dark moment, that, that suicidal attempt? Uh, and then how has dance sustained you going forward? Dancing, first uh, to start, that was always a part of my life. My father was an excellent dancer. He'd taken ballroom dancing in college for some reason. reason. And he and my mother danced a lot. and They danced socially with people in our community, in our compound, our American compound in Kuwait. So I I grew up with dancing. And, And after my mother died, my father would oddly take me to the dance parties with the other adults. I'd just be the only... 10-year-old or 11-year-old. So I danced with all of our friends and dancing became such um, an important part. The Latin dancing mainly was very in vogue at that point. You know, people mm-hmm. went out, did the cha-cha and the rumba and the samba. Everyone was happy. It brought a lot of happiness and it brought back my memories of having my parents dancing when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So after many years of not dancing, once I got into adulthood, and began having children and starting my writing career. Uh, one day, I, I just, um, through just a coincidence, I went, took a line dancing class with a, um, a friend who and asked me to go with her. And after that, I went to another uh, sort of an evening of Latin dance where I was a, a spectator just watching in the audience. And I was so just inflamed emotionally, and I thought, I have to do this. I have to put the writing aside for a while, get away from my computer. And by then I'd written and published a book or two. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go out and, you know, take some dance lessons and reignite this. My husband did not dance. And we would dance at the occasional social party or um, at the, uh, the the office party or New Year's party or something, you know, and then we would we wouldn't dance again for months, you know. So I went out and I started to take lessons and I was, I became good at it very quickly and um, it just all came back to me. Mm-hmm. So I particularly became interested in Argentine tango and um, eventually I, I teach Argentine tango with a, another gentleman. We teach together, we team teach. And I've been doing that for the last 25 years. Wow. And what it has done is it has brought back to me all those joyful moments in my childhood hmm. when I would go out dancing with my dad or with my parents or at home or with the community uh, around us. And it sort of it's been such a boon to me to get back into that part of my life that was dormant for so long. Well, it strikes me that it, it connects you to the happiest time in childhood, but it also I don't know if you think this, Catherine, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's funny to me that your first re-exposure to the first lesson you took again in adulthood was line dancing, which is really more of your mother's culture, yes, right? <laughs> than yes. what your parents danced and probably here you were taking taking line dancing. Country Western. It's much more Tennessee than Palestine. Yes, it certainly is. Well, dancing into the light, Catherine, is such a, an extraordinary glimpse into 
into your history, your culture, your personal story, but also into Arab culture. And I just want to ask one last question before we go, because you've explained something to me that I didn't know. And maybe every listener on this, listening to this now already knew it. And I was just the re, the uh, remedial student. But tell me, just tell our listeners what you told me about uh, the name Abdul and how that works in the language structure of Arabic language. So your name is Catherine Abdul hyphen Baki. Yes. Uh, the Abdul uh, can never stand alone because what it does mean is the slave of or the worshiper of. So it's the slave of, the worshiper of. The word that follows is always a reference to God. So Baki uh, or Baki, the Arabic pronunciation, would be the everlasting. Mm. So the worshiper or the slave of, which means basically the same thing, the everlasting. For example, you asked me about Karim Abdul-Jabbar. Jabbar means victorious. So um, Abdul-Jabbar, which means the, the slave or the worshiper of the victorious, because the real victorious person can only be God, according to uh, Islamic tradition. So any, it, it is a Muslim name, but anything, it can never stand alone. So you said, you know, without disparaging her anywhere, Paula Abdul, that's sort of an American. Yes. It, it's sort of like her last name is of. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Is that a prefix or preposition? Yes. And, and you know, it's like um, uh, my son was supposed to be called Muhammad because that's his grandfather's name. And the oldest son's always named after the grandfather. Mm. But I quickly knew that they were going to shorten his name to Mo. I didn't want him growing up as a Mo. So we called him Omar. So everybody, everyone can pronounce Omar. So I, in other words, I quite understand why Paula Abdul didn't go on to Abdul something. Well, I, the reason I asked this last little question, first of all, I just found it intriguing because I've heard Abdul something in so many names of public figures, but also because it's just a little glimpse into a culture that I'm not exposed to very much, except on the news in negative ways. And correct, you've given us, and particularly in this oh so troubling time in the Middle East, in uh, all that's going on in Israel and Gaza and all of that, it's, I think, just so, so important to understand each other's cultures, the beautiful parts, the foods, the words, the language, the values. And I thank you so much for your lovely book and your story that gives us a glimpse into that. Thank you for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm so honored to have you today. Oh, it's my honor, Betsy. Thank you so much. I was so pleased in my conversation with Catherine today to get a glimpse into a life that I otherwise would likely in my personal relationships never encounter. Isn't that what books do for us? They bring us to people, to places that we might never have known, whether those are lived or imagined people, fictional characters or real people. And I'll admit that in my circle of acquaintance, just because of where I live and how I live, my encounters with Muslim Americans or with Muslims in general is more is limited in some ways. I certainly have encounters in business ways, but I don't have folks of that derivation in my community immediately. So it's really wonderful to be able to, first through her written words and then through this conversation, 
to get to know somebody from another culture. And that doesn't just have to be Arab. It can be any culture that we get to meet. And I just really believe that the more we understand about another's culture, the more we understand of their food and their customs, their values, even how their names are derived, as Catherine explained with Catherine Abdul-Baki, meaning worshiper of or slave of. I just think that's fascinating. And the more personal our connections are with people different from ourselves, the more possibility there is for peace. At the time that I'm recording this, it's the day after the 100th day of the war in Gaza. And it's all that much more poignant, isn't it? to understand another's culture. So I'm grateful to Catherine for a glimpse inside of her own. As far as her personal story, one other thing jumped out in my mind as she was speaking, and I mentioned it, but I want to bring it up here, and that is that even as an adult woman, mature, a mother, grandmother, today, when she remembered back to the feeling of being a child, the feeling of what we might call abandonment or loss. She used the words that a child might use. I just knew that I missed people. Sometimes when we're going through something, we have one way of explaining it. And it's not until a later time and maybe many years later that we look back with a wider vocabulary about such things or more knowledge or insight or just a more adult perspective. She didn't realize at the time that she was near 30 that her malaise had to do with how all of the, the losses and feelings of being left behind had had an impact on her. Now, looking back, she understands that. You know, we like to think there's a cause and effect and it's clear. I did that because, and I find particularly with depression, with mental health issues, and certainly with suicide, that it isn't often a I did that because blank, and there's just a, a single sentence or word. It's often a, a lot of stuff, a million little things, a thousand events, dozens of misinterpretations, to say nothing of one's biology, psychology, and emotional state. You know, the topic of loss and grief and suicide comes up a lot on this program, and uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. I feel like that is something that unifies us all. If you love and you live over a period of time, you will sustain loss. It may be among the most universal of our experiences. That's a lot of extra blooms. <laughs> you can find out more about the Morning Glory Project always by going to themorningglory.project.com and you can listen to any of our more than 100 conversations with fascinating, amazing, inspiring people there. And I hope that this conversation as well as any of those that you find relevant to you help you to bloom. <laughs>